Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall, and we are joined today by Western Colorado Community College Instructor of Agricultural Science, Brian Reed. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You focus on sustainable farming, and you have a vast background on uh, working with organic farms and how to keep uh, crops sustainable. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation because here in Western Colorado, we do a lot of growing. And I want to go back to your love of, of fruits and vegetables and farming and how you got into it. Oh, boy. Um, I was fortunate to learn how to garden from my grandparents, and they came up from the Depression era, so they didn't have access to chemicals to fortify their gardens. So they taught me about crop rotations and how to compost. Uh, they taught me about using biologicals in pest control and having a healthy population of ladybugs matters. Um, so I was able to get turned on at a fairly young age about that freshness and quality of having homegrown food. Uh, so then as I uh, got later on in life and uh, started a family, I decided it was find time to find a career ladder somewhere, and natural foods was certainly booming at that time. So I hired on as a produce clerk with a large natural food company over in Denver. Alfalfa's was their name at the time. They'd been bought out since by a couple companies. And so as a produce clerk, <clears throat> I was able to get in touch with a number of organic and sustainable growers around Colorado uh, that we were buying produce from for our retail stores. And so as kind of a geeky farming thing, um, I forced my children and wife to go visit a number of these organic farms. So uh, mostly during the summertime, but on long weekends, we would go and visit these farms and they were always happy to have us stay at their place and camp on their property. And so I got to see a wide range of growing techniques. And it was amazing to see the diversity of agriculture and what can be done in Colorado. Uh, we tend to think that it's the Midwest and it's California and that's where our food comes from. But oh my gosh, we have a wonderful growing environment. Um, so it was really easy then for me to make the transition and step out of the retail world and get into farming myself. I love that your va your family vacations were going to to different farms. Mine, mine didn't look quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my daughters had some fun learning how to swim in irrigation ditches, and uh, they really enjoyed when we would pitch a tent in the orchards um, to have all the uh, flowering fruit around, and that was, yeah, it was good fun for them. So could you tell us a little bit more about your time managing farms? Because I know you said after you did these travels with your family, you really came to find that there was all different kinds of farms. And I believe you've managed four different types of organic farms. Could you talk to us about those for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I started out uh, managing, a, it was a, a culinary herb farm, a certified organic culinary herbs. And then we started, we had a robust outdoor growing field. And so we could do farmer's markets in the summertime. We actually ended up developing a CSA. So in community supported agriculture, uh, customers would come to us and buy a share of our produce. And then each week we would distribute whatever was in season. And so that was really good to have people coming to the farm to learn about where their food comes from. And um, I spent a lot of time working with school groups as well. It's very important for me for the next generation to know how to get access to quality food. And so um, school teachers are always looking for a field trip and a place to go. Um, so I was working with the uh, school groups and then working with uh, local families and that, you know, doing tours. Um, 
the next farm I went to then also certified organic, we were growing vegetables, but then we were able to bring in a livestock component. And that was really rewarding to get into uh, meat goats. And we were doing a dual purpose sheep. Um, that would be uh, their blue face Leicestershire is the variety of sheep. And they're both for meat and fiber consumption. And so then by shearing the sheep, we got into the organic fiber industry, um, which I didn't realize was such an important thing with number of people that have chemical sensitivities and they're looking for uh, natural fibers that aren't dyed and chemically treated. And so that was a really rewarding market um, to explore. Uh, we brought in, uh, we had a lot of egg-laying chickens. Uh, we brought in pigs and had our complete heritage pig breeding program. And then when we brought in cattle, it became fairly overwhelming for me. And so I had to hire a livestock manager to spin that uh, division off. And then I could focus on the one-acre greenhouse. Uh, we were doing aquaponics. Uh, there in the greenhouse, so growing tilapia in with the Asian greens and lettuces, and then growing year-round in the greenhouse, uh, supplying Whole Foods and other large retailers, as well as uh, we had 120 acres of outdoor growing space, so we were growing a lot of vegetables and providing our own animal feed to feed the animals as well, so that was quite rewarding. When we think of the traditional sustainable model, I think we think of, you know, back to when your grandparents were doing the farming and we had... Um, you know, maybe one crop instead of 30 to 40. And I don't, I, I think in the last few years, soil health has just been a hot topic that everybody seems to be discussing. Is that something that was being talked about back then? Is that new now? Where has this evolution, how has the evolution come to be? My first position as general manager on an organic farm, the owner told me that my job is to make the farm better when I leave compared to what I inherited. And I took that I, I took that as important advice because as stewards, we're working with the resources that aren't ours. We're borrowing it from the next generation and from our children's children, really. And so to build up the soil, the focus then was more about nutrients for crops. And the more healthy soil you had meant you had more minerals and you had organic matter that could be continually breaking down for consecutive years crops. So the more healthier soil, the less fertilizer you're having to buy. So it becomes an economic thing. What I have watched in the industry now, uh, 30 years later, is there's much more focus on the biology of the soil health. And that truly means bringing the soil to life. So when you have a diversity of crops, all the different plants are exuding nutrients through their roots into the soil and different plant families exude different types of nutrients. Um, that's a real good broad spectrum to invite in the different bacteria, the protozoa, the fungus, um, because they all have a diversity of diet. So the diversity of plants feeds a diversity of microbes. They are all the decomposers. They're what's taking the dead plant roots and the leftover plant debris from harvest and turning that away from an aggregate object into small molecules and atoms that plants can actually absorb as nutrients. Uh, we're now finding that a lot of those microbes have the ability to communicate with each other. So we see better uh, drought stress response in healthy live soils. And we also are finding out that different classes of microbes can communicate with the plants to find out what their needs are. And at the time of flowering, they will go seek out more phosphorus and bring it to the plant to help with that flowering and fruit development process. So we're finding now that it's not just about soil health in the way of water retention and controlling erosion um, and not having caked on mud on our boots, uh, but we're actually finding that a live soil makes better quality plants 
balance and that's what you and I eat. I love hearing about that interconnectedness because it uh, it is all interconnected that without this piece, you wouldn't have this piece or by making this piece of the soil as a whole better, that helps the plants, which ultimately helps all of us as individuals. So I like hearing about that interconnectedness. Yeah, the, uh, the NRCS has a, a statistic that for every 1% of organic matter in the soil has the ability to rate, retain 20,000 gallons of water. And certainly from an economic perspective, that's less uh, cost of watering. Uh, from an environmental perspective, that's uh, water conservation, that we don't need to draw as much from the river. But honestly, from a plant health point of view, that's access to water when the plants need it. And if we don't have that living soil, then we don't have healthy plants. And a weak plant can bring in harmful insects and can attract diseases. They don't have the ability to ward it off. So now you've got an insect problem because I didn't have the right water because I have a health soil health problem and it, it all compounds. So it's nice to see that there's a lot of focus that it's the whole picture, um, that it really does take a lot. All Bringing all the factors together makes the best quality food. So I love that WCCC's program is called Agriculture Science. So I'd be curious to hear from you, how does science and technology, what role does that play in organic farming and agriculture today? Um, with the land-grant universities in the late 1800s did a lot of work to really identify what are the key nutrients, what's the um, amount of water that a crop would need. Um, in animal science, it's amazing that we know the exact temperature by uh, stage of growth for pigs of what makes them have the best weight gain. So you can actually modify the temperature in their pens during different phases of their life to, you know, that economic gain of having, you know, the exact weight gain for the exact animal, for the exact breed, you know. Um, those are all very valuable tools that I don't want to overlook. Um, but again... <laughs> A lot of the land grant research is in really amazing places that have like topsoil and have uh, biology in their soil or acidic soils. So here in Colorado with our alkaline soils and, you know, I mean, here in Grand Junction, we are in a desert. Um, we have a lot of challenges and it's hard to interpret some of that data and actually put it to use for us. Um, so there again, if we can look at what does it take to make a living soil and to choose the appropriate crops that belong in our climate, um, that's where I term it as the art of farming. Um, that you go so far with the facts, but then you have to really step back and say, well, what am I working with? What are my goals? Do I want to be a winter grower? That means I don't get winters off and I work all year round. Is that sustainable for my family? Is it sustainable for my body? You know, the science says you can do it. <laughs> but does the art and the heart <laughs> tell you? I was just uh, driving to Montrose and back yesterday. And of course, there are a lot of, you know, it's farm country. There's a lot of people out there growing things. And I'm wondering how do you, your role, WCCC, play in these farmers' lives? Like how much interconnectedness is there between this new, you know, the new technology, the new conversations that are coming out and about, and how do we implement that into farming today? 
That's an interesting question because for the last three years I've been working at the uh, CSU Research Farm out in Fruta, and CSU is our land-grant university, so a number of growers go to CSU. They're, they are who ex- support our extension services and the Master Gardener program. Um, amazing resources that I wish more people took advantage of. Um, what I'm finding specifically with WCCC and people that have an interest in all things CMU is that progressive next step. And uh, how do we get into regenerative growing? How do we move beyond organic to truly encompass all the ecosystem services that are available to us? And so I'm finding that um, some of the more unique specialty growers are really thriving on our hands-on approach. Uh, We have a very uh, experiential-based learning model um, there at the community college. And I have a number of people Uh, growers who are looking for interns and apprenticeships. And so they come to us looking to share what it is they're doing, but also how can we help invigorate them with the newest technology, the newest advances, uh, the newest insights. Um, I'm the faculty advisor for the compost facility. And so we do composting, traditional composting, as well as warm composting. And there's a lot of research coming out about the amazing benefits, growth hormones and Uh, complex biological colonies that come out of worm compost specifically. And so a number of local growers are coming to us asking, what about that? How do I get that going on my property? What is this compost tea I'm hearing about? Um, We hear you're doing all these progressive, interesting things. What do you, what is that up to and how does that benefit me? Um, So that's been a real positive. And then on the other side, it's important for me to keep in touch with those growers because that gives me opportunities for farm tours and field trips with my students. Um, So it's important, you know, again, from that hands-on point of view that we go visit farms and see what it takes in the way of land, resources. What do you spend on seed? What do you spend on labor? How realistic is a five-acre farm versus a 20-acre farm? And can I afford to get into 100 acres? Um, So I'm actively working on building those relationships. But like you say, we're having more and more growers that are coming to us asking, what can I do better? How can I sharpen my craft? I think from our conversation today, it's pretty apparent that you're passionate about what you do. And I mean, like you said, you've been doing this for almost 30 years. Um, I know on top of that, another passion of yours is traveling. And I was hoping you could maybe tell us a story or two of how kind of organic food and agriculture and your time traveling abroad, how the two have intersected. Um, Well, food is very common. And everywhere I go, there is food. And I like food a lot. Um, I, I, I travel on the cheap and I go to uh, mostly second and third world countries uh, because it's more affordable. And I really enjoy staying in youth hostels and guest houses that have a common kitchen. And then I like to shop the local markets and then prepare a meal and whoever's there gets to eat with me, you know, and it's amazing the stories and the camaraderie you can build around a bowl of food, you know? Um, I guess my best story, one of the things that I do when I travel is I visit farms. And so that, you know, I, I'll hire a driver for the day and they want to take me to all the touristy spots. And then I give them my list of where I want to go and they just can't believe that I want to go see a sugarcane field. Are you for real? Um, so uh, in the local country, I identify the key phrase that I have to know is this is beautiful. 
So I, I need to know how to say that in the native tongue. So then when I'm out at the farms, I'll, I'll go out to the um, agricultural areas. And then when I see a farmer, there's people working in the field. I walk out in the field towards them. And that's usually quite alarming because I'm a tall white male and usually the natives are not. Um, so as I'm walking out in the field and I catch someone's eye and then they're approaching me, um, I wait until they're about 20, 30 feet away. And then I scoop up some of their soil and uh, do a little soil analysis and I feel it with my hands. And then when they get up about 10 feet away, I smell the soil and uh, look at it very closely. And then when they approach me, I hold the soil out to them and I tell them, this is beautiful. And they light up and think that is the most coolest thing. And so the traditional response is, you think that's beautiful, come see this. And so I've been able to um, go through all different citrus orchards. I've been on uh, dragon fruit plantations. Um, I was at a farm in Thailand, and they showed me how they were using the elephant manure to make compost and then using overripe papayas as the catalyst for their compost teas. And it was amazing that here's what we would consider primitive techniques that work amazing. And they don't have pests and they don't have diseases. Um, so... Uh, from the one hand, it's nice for me to have a background in sugarcane and dragon fruit that we don't see around here and at least know something about what that crop is and what it requires. But it's also neat to see some of those hands-on, more traditional approaches to growing food and feeding your family and feeding your community. I think that's, I think that's a big goal. What's maybe one of the more unique things you've eaten on your travels? Oh, boy, guinea pigs in uh, Ecuador were a trip. Um, that was odd. Um, one night in Egypt, I didn't think I was very hungry, and I ordered half a pigeon, and the guy just laughed at me, and he brought me a whole pigeon, and turns out there's not much meat on a pigeon. Um, I think the most unusual would be eating insects um, in both Cambodia and Thailand. Um, I ate a uh, grub. Um, I ate a witchetty grubs in Australia, and they weren't too bad, but there was a grub that I ate in Thailand that kind of exploded in my mouth and was a tough textual kind of thing to confront. And then when they offered me the uh, crickets, I had to take the back legs off because of the little hooks on their back legs. I couldn't handle that texture on my tongue, but they taste great. That was, oh my gosh, way better than popcorn. I really enjoyed eating crickets. That was good. I love that. <laughs> you know, you're talking about insects, and I think we, we have to go into the fact that, one, not all bugs are bad for, one, the plants, but two, for nutrients and the future of, you know, how do we feed all of these people? It's kind of interesting because when you do the research, crickets are the perfect combination of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats for the human consumption. And they procreate readily. They don't take up a lot of space. Um, their exoskeleton is a combination of omega-3, 6, and 9 oils, which are also very difficult to find. And so we're running around trying to seek out all these different nutrients and eat this balanced diet. And here's this insect that could do that for us. Um, cricket meal has become very popular in uh, Australia and Europe. And I think we're up to 18 different countries now that have um, approved cricket meal as a feed for livestock. And in America, we haven't made that approval yet. So other countries are moving forward on insect production, and we're kind of behind the curve on that one a little bit. WCCC has a course called Animal Science and Livestock. And I'm, I'm curious, does, do any of these classes talk about plant-based diets and how um, 
how we're like, what's next? And is this technology not only figuring out how to uh, grow better crops, but also how to produce, um, I guess, beyond meat? Sure. Um, veganism and vegetarianism are both on the increase in our country, and there's a number of people seeking plant base. Um, when my daughter announced that she would be vegetarian, I was kind of struck odd because I know the rancher who's producing the beef that I was buying a quarter at a time, and I'm providing free-range and organic eggs, and that's not good enough for your diet, you know? Um, and then one day we had an interesting conversation when she came back from a natural food store with this uh, uh, tofurkey slices. And I flipped the package over and showed her a paragraph of ingredients and asked her, what is the recommended daily allowance of carrageenan? Do you really need all these diglycerides in your diet? I was feeding you food that you could see where it came from. And you're choosing this, you know, let's have a conversation about processed food versus clean food. <laughs> Sorry, that's my own opinion. <laughs> Back to your comment. Yes, we are getting increasing interest in crop production and plant physiology students. A uh, number of students that come from the front range are very interested in doing their own homestead back to the land approach. Um, they'd like to get into niche farming where they're growing specialty products. Uh, for a specialty unique market um, that's completely different than commodity growers that are trying to ship out train loads of wheat you know to some manufacturer in some other state you know riding on the back of fossil fuels of course um, with respect to animal science though we're also seeing a big push in consumer uh, mandates uh, grass-fed beef is skyrocketing in sales way so compared to the corporate feedlot style. So there's a number of people that are very choosy about their meat consumption. And instead of having meat every day, they'll consolidate that budget to having meat once or twice a week and choosing a good quality meat instead. And so from the animal science and livestock courses, we're seeing students that are very interested in the humane treatment of the animal. And they want to know that they're giving the animal the best life possible so that it can function the best um, for their needs. Um, from that point of view, there's also a growing interest in milking, uh, milking goats, milking cows, and then obviously chicken eggs. Uh, duck eggs have come up in popularity. Um, different ways of getting animal products as opposed to um, giving up the animal's life. When we think about eating uh, real food, I'm doing air quotes, um, and having real food be nutrient dense food. Is there something to growing it locally and nearby as opposed to getting your tomato from somewhere around the world? There is because so much of our commodity foods, a tomato grown on the other side of the world has grown from a hybridized specific seed so that it is a uniform size to fit in the box that fits on the pallet that fits in the shipping container. Um, a lot of times those are picked underripe. Um, if peaches are a real good example because we know and love peaches. Uh, peaches from California have to be char harvested slightly immature so that they have some color, but they don't have any give to them. So that then when they're packed and shipped in the boxes, by the time they get to the real store, the retail store, uh, they're still intact. Whereas for us here locally, because we're circumventing a week to 10 days in the warehouse distribution process, we're able to pick peaches when they're more ripe, which means 
They've set more sugars, more flavor. Uh, they've also sent more branch chain amino acids. Um, they have more of a uh, nutrient profile. So a lot of the vitamin A, C, E set later on in the maturation process of the fruit. Um, so we do get more nutrient-dense foods when they're harvested more at their peak of ripeness. Um, a lot of the, back to the tomatoes, tomatoes are all harvested green. And because that's when they're the firmest. And then we put them in these large chambers and pump them with ethene gas to make them ripen and turn red so that they look good on the retail shelf. And when you slice that open, they're pink inside and they don't have much flavor. So when you are able to grow a tomato in your own backyard and let that tomato go fully ripe and red and it has a little bit of a give to it, that's when you get the nutrients. But the flavor profile is night and day. So um, when, I, when I'm working with people who are working off of recipes and it says one cup of chopped tomatoes, okay, well, you can go to the grocery store and buy a tomato shipped in from South America, and good for you. You're getting a lot of fiber and maybe a couple minerals. Whereas if you go to a locally grown um, organic grower that is putting nutrients in the soil that comes through in the way of nutrients in the tomato, now you know you're getting all the trace minerals. But when it's picked much more fresh, you're getting all the nutrients as well. So now that one cup of chopped tomatoes is like a multivitamin. Still make salsa. You're making salsa either way. Are you making thorough nutrient-dense salsa that fulfills your bodily nutritional requirements? Or are you making something that tastes good because you put a lot of lime juice and salt in it? <laughs> so I know we've talked more about um, sustainable agriculture and farming on a larger, well, larger scale again, using air quotes. But what would you say to somebody listening who wants to maybe start a garden in their backyard, but has no idea where to even start. And it can probably feel pretty overwhelming of like, what plant do I start with? What is the soil mixture I need? Is it in sun or shade? What would maybe be a couple of tips you would give to somebody who wants to start doing some farming or agriculture in their own my Onward. first garden, when I moved to Colorado, I was on a third story apartment with no access to the outdoors. And so I planted tomatoes, peppers, uh, eggplant, and a whole lot of culinary herbs in pots. And I had them in the window. And then I was going around with a paintbrush being the bee, pollinating them and spilling water all over the record uh, or the, what do we call that? The bookshelf, you know, um, that was a little problematic. Um for a first-year gardener, one option, I've, I know so many people that have gone down to a garden center and bought a good bag of potting soil and cut an X in the plastic and put a plant in the bag. What's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, that doesn't need any soil at all. Um, if you have access to soil to be able to get some compost and blend it in is never going to hurt. Um, in our uh, heavy clay soils, compost can really loosen up and create some aeration for you. And then compost, of course, is a nutrient source of uh, um, different nutrients that a plant would need to actually grow. Um, we're blessed that we have a number of garden centers in town that are very um, vast in their offering. You can buy plants already grown, buy them in a pot, bring them home, put them in the ground and grow them. And nine times out of ten, they'll do just fine. So just giving it a try, um, getting your hands on the soil and trying it out, you know, um, seeing what worked. You know, if you're able to try a range of plants, one of them's going to work great. And then you've learned more for next year and you get better at it. You know, there's a little bit of a uh, addictive quality to interacting with plants and seeing them respond to different techniques that you've done. Um, 
You know, certainly um, the garden centers are a good help, you know, that can give you pointers on different, you know, um, items that can help you with growing the CSU Extension Office, taking one of my courses. Uh, I have a number of students who will take the crop production course that are business majors, they're nursing majors, um, and they just want to know about growing some food. Um, I've done a lot of work to try to remove all the uh, prerequisites from my courses to open them up that if anybody wants to take a soil science class, hop in, let's go. You know, let's learn more about fertility and water management. Um, and then lastly, there's a number of good books. I'm a fan of anything written by Elliot Coleman. Um, he's kind of one of the uh, frontiersmen in organic and sustainable growing. Um, he has a whole series of books about growing in the wintertime uh, that a lot of people don't consider. Um, I've been growing in the winter here in Colorado for, well, going over 20 years. Um, and in my own backyard, I do a winter garden and I put up little wire hoops and I cover it in plastic and it gets buried in the snow and crushed for a month and then it grows right back and I've got food that I'm eating fresh in the end of January, beginning of February. That's great advice. I might take some of that, start my own garden. <laughs> As a consumer, we're showing up to the grocery store, looking through the carrots, One's a little odd shaped and one is the perfect shape. And it seems that we just keep grabbing the fruit or the vegetables that look how we think they should look. From a sustainable farming perspective, how damaging is that to being sustainable if you're only picking the fruit or the vegetables that look perfect? Unfortunately, the bigger issue is when you go a step previous to that and when the food distributor has a metric that they're using on exactly what that carrot has to look like or they won't buy it and distribute it, that means there's a lot of produce that gets grown that gets rejected at the loading dock or at the receiving dock, I should say. Um, that's really frustrating to me because that took labor, it took a seed, it took water, it took nutrients out of the soil to produce that carrot. So just because it doesn't fit our beauty pageant model of what the Barbie carrot should look like, that doesn't mean it's not full of nutrients and wonderful um, fiber and all the things that we need in our diet. Um, there's been a real book, big push in the industry about um, overcoming the ugly produce. And there's a number of grocery store chains that have opened up on both coasts that are specifically featuring the number twos and the ugly things. Um, I would always bring a lot of the misshapen, ugly produce to farmers markets with me. And I would identify the canners and the fermenters that didn't care. Um, fortunately, when you're working with the restaurant trade um, and you're working with folks that are making tomato sauces and salsa, they'll take any shape of tomato. You know, they don't care. Um, obviously, when you get to the salad bars and people that are plating, um, you know, fresh dishes where they want to feature the produce, yeah, they have specifics of what they're looking for. Um, for me, it's more a matter of who grew the carrot and how long ago has it been harvested. Um, to be honest, I have purchased organic carrots in a bag that tasted like cardboard that I think were months and months old. Um, but they're organic. There's no chemicals in it. Um, I'd rather be working with the CSA I belong to. And when they harvest carrots, I know they're fresh and I get to eat carrots. As Coloradans and particularly um, Coloradans in the western part of the state, what can we do to ensure that these, um, these buyers are, are buying the ugly vegetables and the ugly fruit? What can we do as consumers? Um, the folks that I've talked to at city market have recommended talking to the produce manager and letting them know what your interests are. 
Um, there's an economic stake for them to bring in foods that people will buy. And so if consumers are voicing that they're interested in getting access to some of the number twos and some of the splits, um, they're really, we're very willing to listen to that. Um, Sprouts brings in a lot of uh, what we would consider B-grade produce, you know, some of the small size bell peppers and some of the cucumbers that have a curve to them. And so when they're available to purchase those is voting with your dollar. You're voting to support the practices that they're offering to you, um, which means there's some... I don't understand where in our society at some point we became empowered that we expect to have strawberries 365 days of the year. And if my birthday's in January, it's my right to have a strawberry shortcake. But if you purchase that, you're supporting that industry that's growing strawberries somewhere in the world and then shipping them and sa- and they taste like garbage anyway. So <laughs> you're voting with your dollar and that can go either way. Um, another aspect to keep in mind would be Grand Junction has exploded in their farmer's markets offerings. When I moved here, there was just one market at Cross Orchards, and now we have multiple markets on multiple days. So supporting local growers is definitely a way to get access to quality food, but also to support some of the ugly and the misshapen produce. Uh, and then we also have developed a number of CSAs here in the valley. And uh, again, when I moved here, there weren't any. Um, And now we have three. And I've heard there's a fourth one coming on this summer. So there's a lot more opportunities uh, to support the uh, non-perfect produce, shall we say. Well, Brian Reed, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and your students and just being a part of this region. I know it's uh, an important topic and you're doing a lot of work. So thank you for all of it. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.